Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Well, live from Elevate Studios in Los Angeles and from my house in Chicago, Illinois, it's another edition of the Elevate Together podcast. I'm Dan Katz, Vice President of Data Science and Innovation here at Elevate, and I welcome you to a special edition of the Elevate Together podcast called Inside the Engine Room, where we bring you the people and stories that help bring us Elevate's award-winning products and services. I'm joined today by Kelly Marsh, who's the Director of Product Development here at Elevate. Part of our Elevate Together podcast series, we like to highlight some of the folks that are working inside the engine room and maybe say hi to the audience and give us an introduction to yourself. My name is Kelly Marsh. I am technically a lawyer. I passed the bar exam. I haven't practiced law at all, really. Straight from law school, I went into technology. I worked a lot with attorneys. Straight out of law school, I went to a firm where I was working with attorneys and project managers in kind of an innovation role. And I did that for a couple of years and also worked closely on the platform that they were developing in-house at that law firm and then switched to actually being a developer. So that's how I have gotten into this product management space through that law firm working as a project manager and then as an engineer on their SharePoint development team. You came out of law school and you took what would be considered, especially historically, a a non-traditional path. You know, in some ways you had a a non-traditional background. You're a mathematics major. There are not an infinite number of people with that who also went to law school. How did you decide to take this non-traditional role? Yeah. So in law school, I worked with Professor Ron Stout, who was at Chicago Kent before you were at Chicago Kent. And we worked on a software called A to J Author. A to J stands for Access to Justice. It was basically a program where law students wrote kind of decision tree type programs for people who couldn't afford attorneys to fill out basic court forms. And as part of working with Ron Stout on that project, I actually got involved in working with HotDocs, a document automation software that was part of the A to J author process. You know, at the end of the A to J author decision tree, it needs to produce a document. And I actually learned HotDocs and then taught students there how to use HotDocs too, because it was becoming a bit of a roadblock. Initially, the program was that the students were just making the A to J author program and they were not using hot docs directly. And I was able to bring it in. So it was less of a roadblock for the legal aid organizations that we worked with. We worked with Illinois Legal Aid Online making programs for them. The somewhat unusual thing by law school standards, you were taking substantive classes in law on the on the side, you were also essentially working on productization of legal knowledge. So you joined SciFarth. Tell us a little bit about that. You show up at SciFarth, you've come out of law school, you're on this team at a large law firm doing innovation. Yeah. So through Ron Stout is how I met the folks that I ended up getting a job at SciFarth. At SciFarth, I started as a legal solutions architect. I was one of the first members of that team. There previously had been a team of you know project managers and technologists that were directed internally, so it, towards like internal projects at the firm. And the big change that was being implemented when I joined was directing technologists and project managers at client projects. So we would sit with the attorneys, the partners that were part of an engagement, and work with them to deliver their services to the client. So I got a lot of experience 
being client facing and working with the partner personality and all of the stuff that goes on at a law firm. It's quite a group there. You're sort of parachuted into the the 1927 or 29 New York Yankees of legal innovation. I mean, you think about all the folks at SciFarth have gone on to play pretty important roles at a range of other organizations. Uh, must have been quite of a, an environment to walk into. It's more funny looking back on it now. You go to legal tech events. There's this web of people who all used to work at SciFarth, know somebody who used to work at SciFarth. Like everyone you're talking to at legal tech events has some connection to somebody working at SciFarth. I think a lot was happening early on. So we were doing it before a lot of other law firms were doing that kind of thing. You were there for like four years, right? You played a couple different roles. Tell folks those two types of roles that you held there, what those entailed. Yeah. So I was a legal solutions architect at another company. It might be called a business analyst type role at SciFarth. We were working with the clients. We were using the software solutions to implement solutions for attorneys. So we were sitting with the attorneys, sitting with the project managers and actually configuring things within a system for them. In addition to doing that, while I was a legal solutions architect, I was also doing kind of a product management role for the SharePoint collaboration platform. So they did... SciFarth did a bunch of customization in a SharePoint environment to accommodate the collaboration that the attorneys wanted to do with their clients digitally. And I did the product management with the in-house development team at SciFarth for that. And as part of that, I ended up actually switching to the development team. I had studied math in undergrad. I've always regretted not studying enough computer science in undergrad. And I was basically given the opportunity at SciFarth to learn on the job train on the job and become a software engineer for them. So I did that for like a year and a half, two years. You left SciFarth and you took a role inside of a company, right? Maybe say a little bit about what that experience was like and what it taught you. So at SciFarth, I had the two separate roles. I was a business analyst and then I was a software engineer and I really wanted to do both. I didn't want to pick a lane. So I ended up going into like a legal IT role at a pharmaceutical company. So I was supporting their matter management, contract management, IP management, all of the systems that were specific to legal and the project work related to that. We were actually migrating environments because we had spun off of another company, just managing all of those systems and RFPs to pick new systems and all the things that we interact with now. You were at Bax Alta, right? Yeah, I effectively got exposure to three companies at least as part of that because I joined when we were spinning off of Baxter and we were about to stand on our own as Baxalta. I mean, we were legally our own, but systems-wise, we were sharing a lot of systems with Baxter still. And as we were working on spinning off into our own systems, we got purchased by Shire. So there were at least three separate legal ops departments effectively that I interacted with while I was there. But you were in a fairly small team there. I mean, you went from SciFarth where it's a large law firm and there have been major investments in a bunch of in technology and a substantial team. And you were you were in a relatively small team. There were two of us and we were working with, you know, the software vendors and consultants. But as far as in-house, there were two of us. Well, that's real common, right? With customers that you interact with. It's always a surprise even to me to this day. You go to a company and the company's large and even the legal department might be decent size, but the technology and ops side can be really small. In that instance, you had to play every instrument in the band. Is that kind of a fair way of talking about it? I learned a lot while I was there about the kind of the end-to-end pieces of standing up a software environment because at SciFarth, you know, there was somebody else who did like the DevOps and all of that. 
at Bexalta, obviously, I wasn't like literally standing up the server myself, but I needed to know what to ask for and put in the right request forms with the right people and do all the paperwork required for security. There was just a lot more about the end-to-end process that I learned as part of that. I learned a lot while I was there. Wasn't interested in staying in there because I was worried about it being entirely data migrations. Working for a pharmaceutical company, it was always going to be mergers and acquisitions. In fact, Shire doesn't exist anymore. They were purchased by Takeda shortly after I left. So that was going to be another data migration. So it was just going to be working very hard to maintain the status quo. You don't really get to do any innovation if you're just migrating data all day. That's when I left there and joined LexPredict. Our hiring strategy at LexPredict for people was we wanted people who were Swiss Army knives is the way we would talk about it. When you're a startup, my theory, you have to be able to pivot because one day it's this and one day it's that. If you're a big company, it's a little bit of a different story sometimes or like a large law firm. You had had all these different roles and you both knew the sector and had technical knowledge. If you think of a Swiss Army knife, you need a toothpick one day and a corkscrew the next day. And that's the theory we have. But you came and joined us on our previous edition with Eric Detterman of, of this podcast. You know, We had a code base that the former CEO, Mike Bomarito, put together. But we didn't really have a fully fleshed out product at that time. And we were trying to solve people's problems. And we had a toolkit that could accelerate data science type work. You helped us bring this to life as a proper product. What did you think when you showed up? You had to whip us into shape with proper product management, right? Yeah. I mean, when I joined, I didn't immediately fall into the product management role. I kind of observed things for a while and it took a while to learn the system. Mike had built a great toolkit for himself to use to solve problems, and he could solve whatever problem he wanted with that great toolkit. But from my experience at a law firm and with in-house counsel, I knew the potential limitations of our audience and was able to see what we would have to I mean, effectively cut back on in order to make it usable and actually reach the people who we needed to use the system themselves. We needed to make it more usable in order to scale out the software and allow more people to use it and interact with it directly. And so you made a a series of changes in terms of the user experience, the workflow and functionality. I mean, this is what it means to be a product manager, but maybe folks who don't know what that all entails, how would you explain it to them, the path from where we were to where you helped us go? First, I had to figure out how to use the system myself. So there was some involvement of just like poking around and trying to figure out what it did and how and why. And then once I figured that out, it was really about if I was talking to all of those lawyers or legal ops people or legal solutions architects that I worked with at SciFarth or any of these places, somebody who doesn't actually code. If I'm working with somebody who doesn't actually code, what do I have to do to this system to get it so they can actually use it? And that's kind of been my what I've been aiming for is, is just making it more usable for more people. And we've been slowly working towards that write up what needs to be done to get there and plan it out and prioritize according to what I think is going to provide the most value to our customers. We sold the company to Elevate in November of 2018. And you came over after the acquisition. And for us, the thesis was most of these problems that customers have are not going to be purely solved by a product alone. I think that's AI fantasy is that these machines are just going to do everything and there's never going to be any humans involved in the process. I think another fantasy is that humans will do everything and it's on the machines have nothing to do with it. Both of these are unreasonable positions. We looked at it as the solution to most of the customer's problems is products and people, people plus machines put together into solutions to customers' problems. But products play this core role and that was our core competency. You've come over here, you've been here for now at Elevate for a couple of years. Tell folks what you've been working on 
first, and then we'll talk about what you see over the horizon. I think one of the first big changes that we made coming in is a lot of the data was structured like a computer scientist or engineer would want it in very abstract formats. A lawyer is going to want to be wanting to review things at the document level, like their diligence on a contract. They need to know what is in this contract. So we ended up rearranging things, shrinking things down. It actually results in simplifying things to a certain extent in order to make it usable for the attorney, which does end up having some limitations. One of the first steps, what is the output that the attorney is going to look at? They're going to want things at a document level. They're going to want a row to be a document and columns to be all the things that they want out of the document. And that's one of the first things. And then just building a structure for us to apply it to specific use cases without coding. We needed to build out a structure that would result in the attorney being able to get data in that format that they wanted. Mike was able to code and get the data he wanted in the format that the attorney wanted in the end. But we needed a way to have people who could not code be able to do that. It seems to me like the challenge of products in legal is there's a lot of different user types for us in this field, especially in this enterprise software field and legal. And we have all these different user types. That is a challenge to support multiple user types. We have the problem of wanting to accommodate a legal reviewer. Somebody like a partner at a law firm is probably not in the system at all. An associate or a legal reviewer, they have certain computer skills and You have to plan an environment that they can actually interact with. Now there are more and more innovation teams at law firms, and you want to accommodate those people being able to do more, even if they don't know how to code. And have that middle role of a power user, good at Excel, has interacted with complex software programs before, but never actually learned to code. And you want to give that person a lot of power. Because our tool is open source, and because LexNLP is a standalone library people can use, you also have the developer role people who can actually code and giving them the power to do what they need to do. And each of those roles is progressively more flexibility the further up that ladder you go. With the attorney, they have to be the most limited. If they are to figure it out, you need to give them fewer options. You can't give them the 747 cockpit. That is the challenge. And that's a role, if you think about it, one of the things that we're really excited about is the ability to have access and try to take a lot of our Python code and make it available to the .NET users. .NET Developers are in much larger supply in law firms, right? Python developers, I mean, they're not that many. If you say, well, look, you know Mandarin and you know French, but we have the dictionary that basically allows you to use a lot of folks that know one language, but not the other. I mean, I view that as there's a talent problem in our field too. There's just not that many people that have that technical lift and work in this field. A challenge with all those user types when you're building a product like this, including this user type that's a relatively new one of the developer inside of a law firm or a legal department who wants to extend our tools and not have to be relying on the vendor to do all everything for them. Let's talk about what you see on the immediate and we'll call the longer horizon. So first, we'll do the kind of immediate horizon of the next, say, 12 months. What are some things that you're excited about on the horizon? Something that we already have that I'm excited about getting into more users' hands is a clause level review. So right now, a lot of systems force you to review the whole document at once. But if you're doing kind of a speedy due diligence process, it's easier to assign out at the clause level. So you might have somebody who focuses on the assignment provisions. You might have somebody who, particularly for more complex subjects, when you're trying to manage your resources, you might want people to focus on different things. 
And we have a, a new clause level review that allows you to assign out extracted stuff and simplify the reviewer process. So they're just saying yes, no, yes, no, yes, no down the line. And then doing that final due diligence at the end, you can take out an assignment clause and have somebody identify if it's an assignment clause or not, yes or no, very quickly. But obviously, at the end, somebody needs to go through and confirm, are there any assignment clauses we missed, for example, in this document? So we do have that step at the end. But I think it's a situation where there is a manual workflow that review teams used to do or have done, but then they were forced into systems that required them to change their workflow. And we're trying to wrap back around and give them some options to actually review things in the the right, most efficient way instead of being forced into the document level review because the system does it that way. And then another thing we're working on right now is a conceptual search, which will feed into a lot of other things, but it's basically a model that's really going to understand the meaning of what you're searching so that you could find similar clauses or find similar documents based on the concept that is in what you've selected instead of it just looking for similar words or looking searching a single word. Conceptual search, you know, Doctavec or transformer-based technologies in, in natural language processing, that's like the front of the field. We've seen it start to creep up or show up in tools that are out there. And I know one thing that we've talked about is providing a visual layer for somebody to understand better, to use that technology to go through a big corpus of documents. If I give them the outputs from a word vec model, it's just a bunch of words with probabilities associated with them, or you could array them, I suppose, in some sort of uh, grid, but something that allows people to really go through documents in a very different way. That's really, to me, the frontier from a user experience perspective, where a person's never programmed any of this. It's just happening to them. People use Google and they don't know the hits algorithm or page rank. They have no idea what makes up that and they don't know about this. That visual layer to couple with these advanced NLP methods, wouldn't you agree that that's another frontier for us? We've had a lot of these components behind the scenes available to a mic type user to be able to do some of this machine learning. A lawyer is going to want it to look like a search. A lawyer is going to want the answer to just be there. They're not going to mess with these models and model outputs and like distance between vectors and things. You need to make all those decisions for them. And we're trying to find the right balance between giving the power users options. You know, a power user will be able to train their own models to use without coding. And that's one role. But then the the final like reviewer or attorney will not be making decisions. They will be just searching based on the model that somebody else has already selected for them. I definitely agree with that. One other thing that I think is on the horizon, like a lot of places, we have a series of products and our goal is to stitch them together into a common fabric. There's sort of this IT soup that's out there where they have 14 different systems that are barely connected to one another. And if you want insights where the data lives in multiple systems to answer the question, did you experience that at Baxalta when you were there? A problem that in-house counsel have is they are overhead for the company. And when you're IT for in-house counsel, you're overhead on top of overhead. So as far as funding and like having employees assigned to support like the legal technology for attorneys, that's going to be pretty rare. It's going to have to be a pretty well-established, well-funded company in order to have a technologist working for legal. We had a team of two at Baxalta. But when we joined Shire, we talked to the legal ops folks and we're like, can you put us in contact with your IT person? We were trying to find our counterpart to like plan these migrations we had to do. And they were like, do we have an IT person? I don't know. <laughs> so eventually they got us to the right person. But there's definitely a disconnect as far as 
the support that they should have to do their job efficiently. And a service like the ELM, where you're providing it all, software as a service, it's all going to move that direction because they're not going to have internal technology support to help them stand things up. Most organizations are still at the early to medium at most phases. Maybe as maturity goes up, they might be in a little bit different ballgame. But most places are closer to the world you were in, which is decent size. Like you said, IT and legal is overhead on times overhead. That's a quotable phrase if there ever was one. Beyond what we're working on, what are some other things that you think are interesting on the horizon for the industry that you find interesting in terms of where things are heading? I think the post-execution contract space is pretty well solidified. Due diligence, that type of thing is pretty well solidified with the tool sets and that they're using. I think the place that's going to get more interesting is the solutions that go along with the negotiation process and with the drafting process and merging all of that stuff together. So we are working on improving our integration with the managed contracts platform and the CLM here at Elevate. And I think tightly integrating a CLM with the stuff that we're already doing in the post-execution space and just applying it to the negotiation space could be very powerful. Yeah, I mean, we all have this long arc where first you're negotiating it, Microsoft pops up and says, 76% of the time you accepted this provision in this form. And then examples of that are sitting there. Obviously, what we'd love to have is the kind of haggle bot world where the first round of negotiations actually being done by a bot. To the extent it's that formulaic, if you're getting substitutions based on a playbook. That's the long arc, it seems to me. Wouldn't you agree for this field? There's always going to be contracts that you need a person involved in the whole way. There's going to be complex stuff that isn't going to be covered. But some of this rote stuff that's very low risk, we should be able to get to the point where most of the negotiation happens via a computer. And until we get there, we just need to get to the point where you're really speeding up that human who's just checking things before it goes out to the counterparty. Once you start to capture all of that data about historical negotiation process and really granular data about that historical negotiation process, then you can start to do really cool things to help the person who's doing the negotiating and drafting the response documents. Well, I want to thank you, Kelly, for joining us today for another edition of the Elevate Together podcast. I'm Dan Katz, Vice President of Data Science and Innovation here at Elevate. And again, I thank Kelly for joining us. Kelly Marsh is the Director of Product Development here at Elevate. And this has been Inside the Engine Room, a special edition of the Elevate Together podcast where we bring you stories and people who bring you Elevate's award-winning products and services. Until next time, I'm Dan Katz signing off here from Chicago. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. 